And so take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. And this is where we have the, the teaching, our Lord Jesus teaching on prayer. And we have the text for that uh, most familiar and uh, special song that we just sang, the Lord's Prayer, in the traditional um, hymn form of it. So how's your prayer life these days? Are you praying a lot? Are you seeing God move through your prayers? Are you confident in prayer? Do you believe that God hears you when you pray? Don't you long to have an effective and powerful prayer life? I mean, you hear the stories, right? You hear stories of how people pray and God seems to move his hand like, the, like this great story I ran into some time ago. And um, it's uh, based on a true story, a true account of a missionary with the Overseas Missionary Fellowship. At least it's presented as a true story. Um, it's incredible. And you sometimes think, wow, did that really happen? A uh, missionary out of Michigan, by the way. Um, Tom and Heidi and T- Heidi's sister from Michigan here. We welcome you. Um, Overseas Missionary Fellowship missionary was at his home church in Michigan giving a report of his ministry in Africa some time ago. And it's reported that he said this. He's standing before his church and he gives this story. He said, while serving at a small field hospital in Africa, I traveled every two weeks through the jungle to a nearby city for supplies. This required camping overnight halfway. On one of these trips, I saw two men fighting in the city. One was seriously hurt, so I treated him and witnessed to him about the Lord Jesus Christ. I then returned home without incident. Upon arriving in the city several weeks later, I was approached by the man I had treated earlier. He told me that he had known that I carried money and medicine. And he said, some friends and I followed you into the jungle two weeks ago when you were here, knowing that you would camp overnight. We waited for you to go to sleep, and we planned to kill you and take your money and the drugs. Just as we were about to move into your campsite, we saw that you were surrounded by 26 armed guards. Well, I laughed at this, the missionary goes on to say, and he says, I, I was certainly all alone out in the jungle campsite. The young man pressed the point. No, sir, I was not the only one to see the guards. My five friends also saw them, and we all counted them. And it was because of those guards that we were afraid, and we left you alone. It was at this point, the story goes, in this church presentation in Michigan, that one of the men in the church stood up and interrupted the missionary. And he asked, can you remember the exact date when this happened? The missionary stopped and he thought for a moment and and then he recalled the date. The man in the congregation then gave his side of the story. He stated, on that night in Africa, it would have been day here, I was preparing to go play golf. I remember this. He said, as I put my bags in the car, I felt a strong sense of the Lord leading me to pray for you. In fact, It was so overwhelming, this urge to pray for you, that I called the men of this church together to pray, and we had a special prayer meeting just for you. In fact, he said, he turned to the congregation, he said, well, all the men who met to pray, please stand. And the men who had met that day to pray together stood, and there were 26 of them. Wow. Has that ever happened to you? Where are you in this matter of prayer? How confident are you in prayer? 
Are you a Christian praying? Are, are you a confident Christian who prays regularly? And do you know how to pray? Well, we're in the text on the Sermon on the Mount, and the Lord is teaching the, the multitude that has gathered how to pray. There is a parallel account in Luke's Gospel in chapter 11, and there it says that the disciples looked at Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. In this account, it's in the context of the Lord addressing some serious matters that were, um, that were being twisted in this culture and in this day in the context where the Pharisees and others were using prayer, they were using giving to the poor. Um, coming up is the third illustration, fasting. So our Lord is using three illustrations in chapter 6 where he warns, don't do this stuff just to be seen by people. Because our hearts are deceptive, aren't they? And we have the ability to do good things for the wrong reason. We can give to the poor, and then our old flesh wells up, and our hearts are twisted. And the next thing you know, we want everybody to know how good we are because we gave to the poor, meaning I'm better than you because you didn't give to the poor, and I gave to the poor. And then praying, and praying in public, and the Pharisees were experts at this, standing in the streets, praying out loud, letting everybody know how spiritual they were. And Jesus looks at the audience and says, don't do this. And if you do this to be seen or heard by people, that's your reward. In other words, it bounces off the ceiling. There's no reward in that. He then goes on to remind us, and let's let our eyes go to Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 7. And he says, and when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And Gentiles in this context is pagans, people who do not pray to Yahweh, to the one true God. They have false gods, they have make-believe gods, they might have thousands of gods. And one of the things that the audience listening to Jesus would have understood is they would have been able to relate that to some of the cults and false religions of the pagans called Gentiles, non-Jews. Remember that Matthew's gospel is written to the Jews and it's very, very Jewish in, in its flavor and in its writing. And so these Gentiles, he says, they repeat over and over. And in fact, the idea was even a mumble jumble kind of praying, meaningless jargon in prayer where the meaningless repetitions and Jesus implies they do this to get the intention of their gods. They think because they're praying over and over, they will be heard for their many repetitions. In other words, your God might be asleep. Remember when Elijah taunted the false prophets of Baal? Pray a little louder. Pray a little longer. Repeat that more. Your God might be on vacation. Your God might be asleep. And in the Old Testament Hebrew context, it even Elijah even taunted them by saying, your God might be off somewhere using the bathroom. That's what it means in the context. Wake him up. So in contrast to that, Jesus says, don't be like them, verse 8. Don't be like that. Because look, your father knows what you have need of even before you ask. And you know, that kind of answers a funny question that comes up when you read that. Because you could read it and you could say to yourself, Now why do I have to bother praying? If my Heavenly Father already knows what I need, why do I have to bother praying? Well, let me assure you, it's for your sake, not for His. He knows. Alright? And He wants us to come to Him in faith believing that He responds to our prayers. And we're commanded to pray. God doesn't need to be told what to do by us. God doesn't need information off the prayer sheet from us to know what's going on. 
He is completely aware of all of our needs, but he wants us to look to him. And you're going to see that in the Lord's Prayer today. What do you think? The answer to that question here isn't that prayer is, is some kind of um, exercise in futility. God already knows and he's already decided, I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to do that. You really want me to do that, but I'm going to do this. He doesn't do that. He's a loving Heavenly Father. He knows what you need and he wants you to come as a child to his Father and make that need known in prayer. As you draw closer to him, then you will have a sense, a growing sense of the will of God through prayer. But when we're prayerless, we end up being self-dependent. And when we're prayerless, we tend to forget that God really is in control. But what he's saying here is, I'm not like a pagan God. You do not have to wake me up. You do not have to use vain repetitions to get my attention. I am already aware of it, and I want you to pray to me as a loving Heavenly Father. And Jesus goes on and gives this instruction. And we're going we're gonna to contextualize this with nine questions as we break down the Lord's Prayer. And we use it as a framework for encouraging ourselves to pray more intelligently and more biblically. That we not just be wandering around in our minds, sometimes being guilty of, of, of a repetitious praying that we don't even believe in our own hearts. Kind of a futility in praying or a lack of effectiveness in prayer. And some are discouraged with their prayer life. I've been praying for that person for so long and God still doesn't answer my prayer. Why should I keep at it? Jesus looks at the audience and he says, pray like this. Pray like this. Question number one, as we break down the Lord's Prayer and we learn how to pray the way Jesus is teaching his disciples, question number one, okay, so the purpose here of these questions is to examine how I pray. When I pray, how do I pray? Let me think a minute. <laughs> I'm in a hurry all the time or I fall asleep all the time, you know? And so the first thing Jesus says is, when you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven. Question number one, am I approaching God with an attitude of humility when I pray? Am I approaching God with an attitude of humility? Because look at the opening phrase that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. First of all, you, it has to come to your mind, if you have any accurate understanding of who God is, you recognize that you're coming to him as a father, not as some kind of almighty creator judge of the universe who's untouchable. Or if you looked at him, you're going to be disintegrated. That is, in a lot of ways, who God is. But Jesus teaches us to pray to approach God as our father. And you have to say, what business do I have going before almighty God of the universe, the holy God of the universe, the one who is sovereign and powerful over all things, and saying, Father, Father. And so, it, number one, it reminds me of my salvation, doesn't it? So I'm humbled by the fact that he saved my soul and he's put me in a position of being his child so that I can go to prayer and I can talk to Almighty God of the universe as my Father. Praise God for my salvation. And that's so humbling. Who am I that I deserve to have my sin forgiven? And I've been to the cross. And I've been regenerated. And I've been made into a new creation in Christ. And John 1.12 says what? It says, 
But to all who have received him, who believe on his name, he gave them the power to be called, the right to be called the sons of God, the children of God. So it begins with salvation. So when I pray, my Father which art in heaven, the, one of the first things that should enter my mind is the reality of my own salvation. Do you pray like that? You say, Father, and you say, Father, and you think, wow. And then you have to think of his grace and mercy that saved your soul. And then you're humbled because you recognize what a dirty, rotten sinner you are. And that if it weren't for the cross and the blood of Christ that covers all sin, you would be rejected from the presence of God and cast into the eternal lake of fire. And so you're humbled. So we approach God in prayer, first of all, with a humility for our salvation. And the second thing is we realize that as I say, Father, that I have an access right into the presence of God in heaven, where God is, our Father who are in, who art in heaven. And so I'm not only humbled by the reality of my position, my salvation, and the reality that I can call him Father, but I'm humbled, number two, by this open invitation. He wants us to come to him as a child to a father. You don't have to ask permission to speak to your dad. You come to Almighty God of the universe, Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, and you come to your Father, my Father. Father. He cares. He listens. We've illustrated that in a few weeks ago when we started the first part of this message. The, second thing, the third thing that humbles us is the reality that He is in heaven and I am on earth, and I'm humbled by my own limitation. Our Father who art in heaven. You've been paying attention to what's going on out there this week, the last couple weeks? You get the sense that the world's wobbling on its access right now? Do you get the sense that sin is on the rise? And that the world is in a, in a state of chaos like we've, we've never experienced in our lifetime? Some people and nations have, but we haven't. To where we lack confidence... In the reality of the stability of our culture, we got this Ebola crisis going on, and, and you can imagine in your mind, especially with this 24 hour coverage and this overwhelming fear that's sweeping through, and you think, I'm gonna have to buy one of those plastic suits and a snorkel mask and duct tape, and I'm gonna walk around and sweat to death in this suit. And if, it, and if it happens, it's going to shut everything down and there won't be any groceries and there won't be any gas and our whole society is going to shut down. If we don't get a handle on this, people, our Father which art in heaven, He's not on earth. He's in control. You're on earth. You're the fragile, weak one. He's the king of the universe in heaven. And I'm humbled by that. I'm humbled by the reality of my own limitations and that I can bow my head and I can go to my Father who's above it all, outside of it all, and in control of it all. Praise God. The first question I want to ask about my prayer life is, am I approaching God with an attitude of humility? Our Father who art in heaven. I'm humbled by the reality of my salvation I'm overwhelmed and humbled by this open invitation to speak to the king of the universe. And I recognize and it drives me to prayer this reality of my own limitations in the context of a world that's flying from together. And he's in heaven on his throne and everything's okay. Second question. Do I recognize the holiness of God when I pray? Am I recognizing the holiness of God or have I lost my awe? 
Have I lost my awe? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed means to make holy. To recognize and affirm that he is holy. Holy means to be perfect and without sin and totally pure. Only God ultimately is holy. We are to reflect his holiness in our lives. But it says in the text, hallowed be your name. So I come to God in prayer and I recognize that, that I have an open invitation to my heavenly Father who's on the throne of heaven and then I want to recognize in my prayer that He is a holy God and so now I have in sort of a juxtaposition in some kind of a spiritual tension an open invitation to come, in a sense, be hugged by my heavenly Father but at the same time, hallowed be thy name, I am to be overawed and in fear of the reality of this holy God and so on the one hand, I come comfortably into my Father's presence, and then the tension is, I fall on my face in awe before such an awesome and holy God. And so I want to have a a respect. And I'm not goofing around. I want to be comfortable. I don't want to be afraid of God. I'm not afraid of my Father. I shouldn't be anyway. He wants me to come into His presence. But I'm not going to go into His presence and say, Hey, dude. Hey, bud. Hey, God, aren't you glad I showed up today? I quit surfing for an hour and I'm going to talk to you now. It's like, shut up and get on your face because he's a holy God. And it's going to be the sword that comes out of his mouth as he rides the horse in the sky that's going to destroy the godless nations. He is in control and he has a plan and everything's fitting together. We're going to talk about that. Some of the occurrences are such good sermon material, it's unbelievable. I can hardly wait to get there. As the timeline given in Scripture just unfolds before our eyes, it's going to come up at the end of Matthew. In the last few chapters of Matthew, Jesus is going to take time and give a long discourse on the the world in its last days. Some of the stuff he says is front page news right now. It's unbelievable. He's a holy God, and His name is great. All right? Let me just, this is what Jeremiah 10.6 says. Jeremiah 10.6 says, No one is like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Hallowed be your name. It's mighty in power. Psalm 33.8. Psalm 33.8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. That's the awe. Another place in Jeremiah, Jeremiah warned the people and said, What is wrong with you? You have lost your awe of God. When you lose your awe of God, you don't fear God, you don't respect God, therefore you're comfortable with sin, you're comfortable with disobedience. You don't care. Psalm 33, 8 again. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Maintain that awe of God. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Psalm 29, 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Hallowed be your name. You are Adonai. You are Elohim. You are Yahweh. You are Jehovah Jireh. You are Jehovah Shalom. You are El Roy, the God who sees. It's not the guy next door. It's not like your friend, the police officer down at the donut shop. It is Almighty God of the universe. You should be in awe of His name. You should tremble in His presence. 
Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Holy be your name. Hallowed be your name. Psalm 148, 13. Praise the name of the Lord, for His name above above all is exalted, and His majesty is above the earth and heaven. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Are you coming to prayer in a spirit of humility? And when you pray, are you early on in your prayer acknowledging the holiness of God so that you get a little bit of a shudder, a little bit of a fear, a little bit of you better straighten up. You're in the presence of a holy God. We're not goofing around right now. Question number three. Do I long for his kingdom and his reign in this world? Do I long for his kingdom and his reign in this world? Look what it says. Verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Question number three. Do I long for his kingdom and reign in this world? I already referenced what an incredible couple weeks it's been. I mean, we got Ebola crisis just having our attention, creating fear. We've got different, different groups of Terrorists and Islamic terrorists taking over the world, it seems, according to the news. We've got people who are in powerful positions who could do something about it, who are looked the other way as entire people groups are wiped off the face of the earth. We got almost weekly guys getting their throats cut on video on YouTube for everybody to watch. We got pastors having their sermons subpoenaed in Houston, Texas for preaching God's word and preaching against sin. We got a federal judge, one guy, getting in the bench in the state of West Virginia a week ago Monday, reversing the entire state law that our state has voted and has put in position in an orderly fashion, declaring homosexuality is, is not a lawful condition for marriage. And one judge says, no, you can't do that. Contrary to the, to the word of God, contrary to the order of our society for 225 years, I mean, everywhere you look. It's just like going crazy. In the middle of that, don't you think it would be appropriate to say, Father, would your kingdom and reign and rule please come? We need a kingdom of light. We're living in a kingdom of darkness. We need a kingdom of order. We're living in disorder. We need a, we need a kingdom that makes sense and has logic, not one that is full of lies and disorder and disarray. Now there is, in this context, I'm confident, a prophetic statement in the prayer. When Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, it has, at some level, it is a prayer forward, looking forward. Father, would you establish your kingdom? Would you ultimately, once and for all, make all things right? And he will. And will you sit on the throne? And will you rule over us? And bring this chaos to order. And, and that is, at some level, a prophetic prayer, looking to the future. But I don't think that's a bad prayer to pray today. Father, as you rule in heaven, would you please have your way on earth? Do I long for his kingdom and his reign in this world? The fourth question is, as I pray, am I surrendered and yielded to the will of God? As I pray... Does it come through in my prayer life that I am truly surrendered and yielded to the will of God? 
Can I really pray like Jesus at Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but your, be, your will be done? Or do I spend the balance of my prayer life trying to convince God, like he's some kind of lucky charm, to do things that I want on my agenda? Or am I surrendered and still before him and say, your will be done? Do I really long for God's will? I suspect that some of us are a little bit afraid of God's will. You know, you know, if I really surrender to the will of God, that means that all my good times are going to really be trimmed back. If I am in the will of God, you know, like I used to teach my teens, I'm afraid of the will of God because surely I'll have to marry someone ugly, move somewhere awful, and I won't make any money because we all know that people who live out the will of God, they're just like boring gray people. We're a little bit afraid of God. Do I really? You know, the party's happening over there, and here's God and his people over here, and if I walk in his will, I don't get to go to the party anymore. Or be with the people I want to be with. Or maybe I'm trying to force an agenda in my world. Maybe there's a person. Maybe there's a place. Maybe there's a job and I really want it and I'm trying to force it. And the little voice inside says, it's not my will for you, my child. It's not my will for you, my child. And I don't really want to surrender to the will of God. And so I pray, God, would you make my plan happen? Proverbs does say, surrender your plans to the Lord and they will succeed. But do you know they only succeed as your plans line up with the plan of the Heavenly Father? Your kingdom come, and will your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Heaven's a great place. Heaven's a place of order. Heaven's a place where God rules. Heaven is a place of light, not darkness. Heaven is a place of perfect justice, not injustice. Heaven is a place where it is all truth, not lies. Heaven is a place of peace, not war. Your kingdom come and your will be done. I think that's a pretty appropriate prayer for God's people today, don't you think? Question number five, and you're going to notice a shift now. Okay, so we're moving now in the prayer from focusing heavenward and Godward to looking inward and at my own personal world. I continue to ask questions about my prayer life. Question number five. Do I really believe that God cares about my personal needs? Do I really believe when I pray that God cares about my personal need? Look at the first thing Jesus says in verse 11. When it's looking inward or at our personal level, no longer looking Godward. Remember, we talked three weeks ago that this was, this was a balanced or symmetrical prayer. There were three aspects of looking Godward and then there's three aspects of looking downward or inward or personally at our own lives in a practical, physical way. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. That's the whole verse. You memorized a verse. Give us this day our daily bread. Wow. Now, I suspect that this was a a little bit more meaningful at a time and a place when Jesus was teaching where people didn't have electricity and they didn't have freezers full of food and they didn't have grocery store shelves that were packed with food. And if you couldn't get it at the grocery where you really liked it, you could go to Walmart and probably find it there. And so, you got it. And so, you pray. Lord, today... Would you help me feed my family? You see the pictures of these dear ones in, in uh, Ghana? It reminded me of Malawi. All over. 
poor people of the world? I often thought when I wake up in, in Malawi, when I'm there and I'm at the guest house, it's looking over a valley and there's just tens of thousands of people in this valley. And in the morning, the whole valley fills up with smoke. It's a very um, strong smoke and, and, and it kind of sticks on your clothes all day long. And you see it like a, a fog in the valley and it just rises. The more fired, the more cook fires they get going for the day. And it just fills the whole valley till middle of the day the wind comes and blows it all away. And I've thought to myself, I said, what are they cooking? What are they cooking? I walked through there yesterday. I didn't see any food. What are they burning? There's no fuel. They pick up a few sticks here and there. You see, give me today my daily bread. And God does. And a lot of those Malawian believers, that's their prayer. Father, give us today something to eat. They get a little bit of fuel and a little bit of fire and boil a little bit of water and throw a little bit of corn maize in there and make it into corn mush and pass it around and eat a few bites and sustain themselves for another day. And the next day, today, not tomorrow, today give me my daily bread. Tomorrow we pray the same prayer. A lot of Bible students believe that this is more speaking more about just daily bread, but that this idea of give us this day our daily bread has to do with our physical needs, and it's symbolic of the necessities of everyday life. And it's the reality of coming to the Lord in prayer with a complete dependence. Today, Lord, I'm not dependent on myself. Today, Lord, would you meet my needs And it's more across the board. Now, we are a very wealthy people. It's one of the reasons why Jesus taught that it's very difficult for wealthy people to get into the kingdom of God. Because we don't have any felt need. What do I need God for? I got it together. I've got everything I need. I got many clothes. I got a good car that starts. I got everything. And you don't have to feel guilty that you have a lot. We have to be concerned that we be good stewards of what we have while we have it, and learn, even in our affluence and even in our plenty, to say to God, today what you've given me comes from your hand. And in complete dependence today, may we live, may we live with an assurance that you are meeting our needs. You thank the Lord for hot water coming out of the shower head this morning? It's easy not to do. After the first service, a lady went out and said, Pastor Van, my hot water heater was off this morning. I had to take a cold shower. It was miserable. But until that happens, we don't think about it. What a privilege it is to turn the shower water on. And to have nice soaps. To have clean clothes. And to have good hygiene in our kitchen. To have things in order. To go to sleep at night. In the first service, they didn't say it in the, sec- in the second service. Um, Jeff and Abby were talking about the fact that in their sleeping quarters, there's a problem with rats. Most of us don't worry too much about that in our sleeping quarters. Father, today, would you just care for my basic necessities and would you care for my family? I want you to notice that it's a most basic need, food, my bread. It's a most basic need. I think it was R. Kent Hughes in his commentary, preaching the word through this passage of the Sermon on the Mount, said, notice that he said, give us this day our daily bread. He didn't say, give us this day our dessert. Speaking to the point of our most basic needs. It's very specific. It's not general. Today, my bread today. It's physical. It's not wrong to pray for physical sustenance. And it's, it's to the point. It's immediate. It's right now. How God is meeting my needs right now. That's an appropriate way to play. pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, give us today our daily bread. 
I've told this story so many times, but I still like to tell it. My father was in the carpentry shop at Moody Bible Institute. And um, it was in the late 1940s in downtown Chicago. And it was not rebuilt. Uh, There's been a lot of urban renewal in Chicago. And back in the 40s, coming off of World War II, it was very much a, a downcast place. Alleys and row houses that were falling down. Most of them made wood frame houses, some brick and concrete. And there were many poor people there in the inner city by Moody Bible Institute. And my father worked in a carpenter shop that was down in a lower steps level of a basement. He would come out the back door to the alley. And as he worked on the things around the campus, trimming out a door, fixing a broken desk, fixing a piano bench, building shelves for dorm rooms, whatever they did in the carpentry shop, as they had extra splinters and kindling, he would put it in buckets and they would set it up on the alley and it would disappear. He said he was particularly mindful of one old lady and he began to gather things and hold them for her. A little old lady that lived up the alley, very elderly, very frail, and she was hunched over and she would walk the alleys looking for little sticks and twigs and leaves that she could put in her little wood stove. A lot of the homes in the late 40s still burned wood and coal. And she would come by and my dad would see her there and she would pick up a stick and she would look at my dad and smile and she'd say, ain't God good. Ain't God good. Our Father which art in heaven, give me today my daily bread and my sticks for my fire. Do you think like that? Do you think you have it together? You think you can handle it? Learn to pray with a dependency on your Heavenly Father. So my father gathered sticks for her and helped take care of her with the kindling from the carpenter shop. Question number six, is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Is there any unconfessed sin in my life? And forgive us our debts. And forgive us our debts. It's interesting that there are about five words in the New Testament Greek translated into English that mean sin. The most familiar one is a Greek word that sounds something like this. Hamartia. Hamartia with an H. Hamartia. We get, our, we get our, our name for the doctrine of sin from that very word, hamartiology. If you go to Bible college or you take a class in theology, and they will teach you the doctrine of sin, hamartiology. comes from the Greek word hamartia, and it means to miss the mark. And it's, it's translated sin, S-I-N, in our New Testament a lot. Hamartia, you missed the mark. The more you study it, the more you realize, not only did I miss the mark like I was trying to miss the mark, you actually missed God's mark. You missed His holiness. You missed the mark because you wanted to miss the mark. You didn't care if you hit the mark. Sin, missing God's mark. Another word that's translated for sin is often translated trespass in our New Testament. Our trespass. It has the idea of slipping and falling. I I almost got there, but I slipped and fell. I trespassed. I broke the law. I slipped and fell. A third one, a third word is the idea of stepping across the line or going beyond the limits. And it's often translated transgression in our New Testament. Transgression. I stepped across the line. So one word in the Greek means miss the mark. Another word means that I have slipped and fallen. Another word means that I have stepped across the the line or gone beyond the limits. It's a transgression. Another word translated of sin in our New Testament, a fourth one, is lawlessness. Lawlessness. 
And, and it's the idea of an intentional flagrancy in disobedience. They're just lawless. So in the New Testament, if it talks about sinful people and calls them lawless, it means that they've broken the law and they don't care and they're happy to break the law. It's flagrant. A fifth word is the word that's used here. And it's debt. It's the idea that I have a moral and spiritual debt that must be paid. So when I pray, it is right in my prayer to get things right with God and to seek forgiveness for my moral and spiritual failures. I have a debt to God. And one of the interesting things is, is that I can't do anything about my own sin. That's a real problem. I have this moral failure. I have sinned. So I go to God and he's the one who can forgive me of my debt of sin, my moral and spiritual failure. Here's how he does it, in case you don't know. He looks at us and he loves us. That's a pretty remarkable thing. God loved the world, John 3.16. Even while we were yet sinners, God loved us and gave Christ to die for us, Romans says. You see, Jesus came and went to the cross on our behalf, took the burden of our sin and all of our moral and spiritual failures, and he paid the price for that once and for all at the cross. Then I get forgiveness by going to God, acknowledging my sinfulness, in faith believing that what Christ did at the cross over 2,000 years ago is good for me today. That's pretty remarkable. And so God, through Christ, does for me what I can't do for myself. He pays the penalty for my spiritual and moral debt. And so in my prayer life, one of the things I'm doing is I'm making sure I'm right with God that day. Now, we don't get saved over and over again. I don't have to go to the cross for my salvation. When I've been to the cross and in faith received the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ, He makes me His child. That's why I can be humbled by my salvation once and for all. I am His child and I'm a new creation in Christ. But 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me say that again. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness that day. That's the father-child relationship. When I sin as a born-again Christian, I don't lose my position in the family, but I have, I have broken the relationship with my father. My name is still his name. I still carry his name. I'm still part of his inheritance. I'm still welcomed at his house. But, oh, we're not talking very well right now. And so I confess my sins. Our Father, forgive us our debts today. I confess my sin. So prayer involves confession, seeking forgiveness of sin, so that relationship is restored. And, and I ask the question number six, is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Question number seven, am I withholding forgiveness from anyone who has offended me? Because he goes on, Jesus does, and he wants us to think about relationships in our lives. And he wants to think whether those relationships are broken or not. And he says, if you come to your father and you say, forgive me my debt today, then he says, remind yourself, as I have already forgiven the one who's in debt. To me. Now let your eyes fall down to verses 14 and 15. And he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Wow. That's our whole message next week on forgiveness. So we're not going to comment a whole lot more. But the, the, ba- the baseline is 
That by the time I've come to my Heavenly Father in prayer, I have known to clear up broken relationships so that I can go in a clear conscience before a holy God and enter His presence. Forgive us this day our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Question number eight, am I living in victory over sin? Am I living in victory over sin? And lead us not into temptation. And lead us not into temptation. James chapter 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. So clearly, the Bible doesn't contradict itself, and God is not setting up traps for us to fall in. He's not praying, okay, and Lord, help me not to slip into your little traps of sin that you're setting up for your children. God doesn't do that. But the idea is that there are testing, and we could show you how that word has the idea of there are testing that God allows in our life. Earlier in James chapter 1 and verse 2, he talks about the trials and tribulations that bring us to maturity. And I think the idea here is a lot like Christ in Gethsemane. Lord, I'm willing to do your will, not my will, but your will be done. But if at all possible, would you remove this cup from me? You have set up a course and a direction in my life where I am going to be tested. And in the, and in that, in that crucible of testing, I am worried that I'm going to yield to the temptation to give in. So help me not to yield to temptation as the course and direction of my life for your will for my life unfolds and there will be testing in this world. In the context of that testing, I do not want to sin. I do not want in my fleshliness and in my weaknesses to yield to sin. And that's easy to do, isn't it? I'm in a setup, a situation where things are not going so well. I've spilled coffee on my pants. I have a flat tire. My battery's dead. The kids are crying. There's no milk. My wife doesn't like me and I'm late for work. (laughs) The next thing you know, man, doors are slamming. Trash cans are flying. Things are not pretty. Because God's not capable of handling this day. See what I mean? In the, in the trials and tribulations of life that I would not succumb to the temptation to sin. As I am about the course and direction of my day, how often is the evil one going to put things in my way to tempt me of all sorts? Give me victory over that temptation. Question number nine. Am I praying for protection from the evil one. I said question number eight, didn't I? Am I living in victory over sin? Question number nine. And finally, am I praying for protection from the evil one? It's overwhelmingly evil these days, isn't it? I mean, leading the headlines on the news is, is some guy has kidnapped a girl from UVA. They might have found her body yesterday or something. Would you like to be those parents? Their college girl is buried out in some field somewhere. We can't even find her. Some guy snipers a cop out in uh, Pennsylvania somewhere and he's running around acting like a commando in the woods because he can. So what is that all about, shooting innocent people? You know, the stories of Islamist terrorists in Nigeria capturing these young Christian girls and taking them away and abusing them and using them and horrifying them and just a horrible tragedy beyond the imagination, raping, raping and enslaving Some nurse who has all the good intention in the world ends up herself having Ebola. Some 15-year-old kid just riding his bike gets run over by another school kid in his car. Evil everywhere. The residuals of sin. It's overwhelming. So when I pray, wouldn't I pray 
Father, deliver us from evil. Deliver our church from evil. Deliver that family from evil. Deliver my teenage son from evil. Deliver this employee from evil. That's the most appropriate prayer, isn't it? There it is. How is your prayer life? Are you praying? There's a scaffolding. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done in my life today. On earth as it is in heaven, Lord, would you bring things into order? We're in chaos. Give us this day our daily bread. Help us to have a moment-by-moment dependence upon you. And forgive us this spiritual and moral debt that I've accrued today as I have forgiven this one who's offended me. And lead us not into temptation. Lord, life is hard. I'm so tired. And life is difficult. And I'm burdened down. And it would be so easy to just go over here and do this sin. Keep me from that temptation. Deliver us from the evil that's overwhelming us. It's a good prayer outline, isn't it? It's a good prayer outline. Isn't it amazing? It's absolutely just as relevant the day it was taught. And it is today. Equally relevant today. That's the Bible for you. It's um, right there before our eyes. Now it's our job to go and live it out. Will you stand with me, please? Let's pray together. You know, I'd like to sing the Lord's Prayer as we conclude one more time, Janet. Sound uh, AV people. Father, would you teach us how to pray like this? Would you just bring these things as part of the natural flow of our communication with you, that we would enter humbly into your presence as our loving Heavenly Father. Recognize that you're in heaven over us and everything is okay. You're on your throne. You're going to bring things about according to your plan. Father, the whole reality of just our own limitations and we come to you and you provide our daily bread and you forgive us of our sins and you help us to have the strength and the stamina to admit our failures and forgive others around us and and we're overcome by the evil but we don't want to be and we want to acknowledge that you can hold back evil and just help us to, to learn how to pray like this. Not repeating a a template for prayer but recognizing we have an outline for prayer here. Teach us to be a praying church, Lord. In Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.